Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, hello, hello. This is Aaron Jones. Welcome to the show. Blimey. This is a very, very important show. This is a biggie. Very big. This is the story we should all be talking about right now in a major, major way. It's been described as the biggest lobbying scandal in a generation. It is the Greensill lobbying scandal. Just very quickly, if you haven't heard of it, there is one of the news story which you've probably noticed is dominating most of the coverage right now. Lex Greensill. Have you heard about this guy? So he's friends with Cameron, a former unpaid advisor to our fallen prime minister. Founded Greensill Capital, which was thrown into turmoil as it teetered on the edge of bankruptcy. David Cameron lobbied Rishi Sunak, of course, our chancellor, amongst others, for financial support. Now, today we have the absolutely fantastic journalists who have broke this huge story. And we're going to be talking to them about the details, about what it all means, about the repercussions, will there be any? Uh, and we'll be looking uh, later on. We have. Uh, Riley Quinn to talk about broader analysis. What does this what does this mean politically? What does this mean about politics in Britain and beyond? Now, uh, to kick off, we're going to bring in uh, two fantastic journalists who have broken this scandal: Robert Smith from the Financial Times and Gabriel Pogrand from the Sunday Times. Hello, both of you. Great to see you both. Hey, it's beyond. Hello, hello. So let's start with you, Robert. So. Uh, you've been working on this story. You've done several pieces. We've just uh, flashed one up. Here we go. There we go. Uh, bungled Australian uh, uh, camera. Sorry, Greensill and Cameron and bungled Australian lobbying. Now, do you just want to explain what the hell is Greensill Capital? Because mm. people, a lot. Of, I mean, this is a company which the likes of you write about SoftBank Vision Fund put one point five billion dollars into this. People were, as you say, bewitched by its financial engineering. What the hell is Greensill Capital? And just give a background of this scandal. What is this scandal? Yeah. Why does it matter? So, I think in terms of like what. What is Greensill Capital? So you mentioned their SoftBank Vision Fund, which was like the most powerful tech investor in the world. It invested one and a half billion dollars into this company, and it was supposed to use sort of technological solutions to help small businesses get paid. So the guy who founded it is a guy called Lex Greensill. He named the company after himself, and he's actually from a very humble background. So he's from Australia. He's from Bundaberg, Australia more known for its ginger beer and root beer than its financing Um, and um, he was a farmer he's from a farming background so he had this whole sort of personal story about how his company would help small businesses like his parents farm get paid faster but their slogan was literally making finance fairer but in reality what we the financial times and some other publications have been covering for years is that a big part of their business model was actually advancing 
large amounts of opaque financing to some really unsavory companies. So several of their customers have actually collapsed amid fraud allegations. And the sort of opaque financing that Greensill provided was often central to this. And all of that, shall we say, like dubious lending they did, it's sort of come home to roost. So from being worth potentially $7 billion, the company collapsed last month and it's now worth nothing. So SoftBank's investment's gone. David Cameron thought he was going to make money from his shares. Those are gone. But the situation is like even worse than that. So in Germany, Greensill owned a bank. The management of that bank is now under criminal investigation for balance sheet manipulation. So it's a, it's a lobbying scandal and that's really important. But this is like a massive financial and corporate scandal. And it involves allegations of fraud, like balance sheet manipulation, all of this stuff. So yeah, this is about as serious as it gets for sort of reporters like me who cover finance. So Gabe, before we talk even further about this, let's just talk about your huge scoop this weekend, um, which is uh, that he took the disgrace, David Cameron, disgraced financier Lex Greensill to a private meeting with Max Hancock. Just explain what happened. So something that we've been trying to chronicle in the Sunday Times, um, something the Financial Times have been doing as well, is looking at how Lex Greensill managed to make his way into the heart of the British political establishment and use the kind of patina of establishment approval and all these political links he had in order to promote his business and court investors and ultimately enrich himself. And our reporting primarily started starts, or at least our timeline starts in 2011, when Greensill kind of mysteriously enters Whitehall as a advisor on his special form of finance, ends up lobbying the government to launch a scheme. Cameron himself actually launched it, sat two seats away from Greensill in Downing Street, um, which delivered payments to pharmacies. And the bank which carried it out was Greensill's former employer, Citigroup, and in due course, his own company took it over. So while Cameron was in government, he engineered a scheme, Greensill, that he ended up benefiting from. But his links to the political world don't stop there. He was given a CBE for services to the economy a um, number of years later. And then up until recently, con continually has used, um, it, I mean, in, in, in this instance, David Cameron himself uh, to advance uh, his own uh, career and business. And what we revealed today was the fact that over the course of the last two years, um, Greensill has sought to insert himself into the relationship between the NHS and doctors and nurses awaiting payment. He tried to come up with a scheme whereby he would accelerate payments to NHS staff. And this did actually happen. Um, it was rolled out uh, uh, in, in a number of trusts uh, last year. What we revealed today is that prior to this happening, Lex Greensill courtesy of David Cameron, met a number of rather important people running the NHS. Uh, one of them was Matt Hancock, who he in fact met with Cameron at a private drink in October 2019. It wasn't chronicled by civil servants. Um, I'm going to stop using that word. It wasn't minuted by civil servants. There's no record of it. It wasn't disclosed in transparency data. And moreover, um, with Cameron's help, he also managed to meet Dido Harding, and the CEO of the NHS, Simon Stevens. So 
um, zooming out is yet another example of how this guy uh, has secretly inveigled his way um, into the heart of not only the British state in the form of the cabinet office in Downing Street, but now the NHS as well. I mean, what you write about, Gabriel, in your uh, in your scoop is that after he launched the partnership, the NHS shared business services, uh, it was jointly run by Hancock's department, um, allowing up to 400,000 NHS staff to be paid uh, daily. The, this then, uh, he planned to make money from the scheme, but it was awarded without tender or an open process. That's quite right. I mean, um, you obviously uh, will have a, uh, a full-bodied critique of... Um, privatisation of the NHS and without um, being political it's a factual point in this instance that NHS shared business services is a private entity it's got two shareholders one of them is a French IT consultancy and the other is the Secretary of State uh, for Health not uh, Hancock himself but effectively him in his capacity on behalf of the government Um, but because of its structure it doesn't have to abide by normal procurement rules don't have to put contracts out for tender um it can simply sign up to them in a way that i could enter an arrangement if i founded a business of my own and what this meant was that at the height of the pandemic um nhs shared business services nhs sbs for short announced this exclusive partnership with a company called earned it was owned by greensill it had even previously been called uh greensill pay they announced this partnership to roll out Greensill's payroll services um, to quote all NHS organisations. Now, that was kind of hyperbole in marketing speak. What it meant was uh, Greensill had access to up to 400,000 NHS staffers through the form of an app that the NHS SBS ran. Um, But I don't need to tell you that the NHS um, is one of the biggest workforces literally in the world. And if you as a company can get access to that workforce it can be very very lucrative indeed and so i'm sure people will be troubled to know that having had this kind of seemingly unfettered access to the secretary of state um he then went on to sign this deal uh seemingly in 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 opaque terms um i should add that we still don't know the terms on which it was agreed we don't know if there were any data protection clauses um we don't know whether he could have monetize his platform in due course he claimed it was very benevolent he was he said offering it for free uh, to nhs organizations because of the pandemic it's going to help alleviate stress by paying staffers rapidly um but my understanding is that he intended to parcel up future payments from the nhs into bonds and sell them um and you know staff at the company have told me that it was absolutely to make money and also again to do what Greensill loved doing, which was weaponizing or instrumentalizing uh, officialdom and links to the government to uh, shore up his reputation with, with with private sector clients. Robert, I mean, as you say, a lot of people look at this and think, this seems, it's tawdry, it's grim. What does it yeah. say about the way, you know, so on and so forth. But David Cameron's been cleared. What's the issue? Well, David Cameron's been cleared on a technicality. He's been cleared because he was an in-house employee. He wasn't a third-party lobbyist. So that's the only reason he's been cleared. Um, second of all, David Cameron had share options in the company that we were. We understand that if he had listed at that $7 billion valuation that Greensill talked about, 
David Cameron would have made tens of millions of pounds from this. We've also seen pictures of David Cameron on Greensill's private jet. Greensill had not one, he had four private jets and they were all financed by his bank in Germany that is now under criminal investigation, okay? David Cameron has answered no questions about any of this. So two weeks ago, we reported that David Cameron and Lex Greensill went on a camping trip, okay, but not a camping trip in England, a camping trip in Saudi Arabia with the Crown Prince MBS, right? We obviously have asked Cameron about this. He's ignored everything, okay? David Cameron has an office which is funded by taxpayers to deal with these press inquiries. They've said nothing. Instead, we've had the friends and allies of David Cameron, this sort of white hole jargon, right? These sort of mysterious figures have been coming out to defend him. Why hasn't he given us an answer about any of this? It's just, it's absolutely ludicrous. And in terms of what Gabe was just talking about, this, um, this NHS product called Earned, right? This was key to Greensill's PR. So he went on Sky News in March at the height of the pandemic, right? And he said that Preda Monje just offered a free cup of tea to every NHS worker. And he said that Earned, this thing where you could get paid faster, was his cup of tea to the nation. So... <laughs> I mean, it's just incredible. And I had um, I had a nurse, actually, who worked for an NHS trust that was rolling it out. She was kind enough to share the email she got about Earned. And it reads like ad copy. So I've just, I've got it up while we're on. And it has like these NHS endorsements at the bottom. So it's got a receptionist from Newcastle saying, I'd give Earned five out of five. I've told a few friends to download too because it's so useful to staff for have. They've got a maternity ward staff saying, I think earned makes you feel more relaxed and gives you an added dimension to the structure of your finances. So it's just like incredible, the NHS literally writing like ad copy for Greensill. And then on top of this, so Greensill said that earned would like put payday lenders out of business. One of the companies that Greensill lent to was Bright House, which some of your viewers and listeners might know, their business model was selling like flat screen TVs to sort of financially precarious people at massive APRs, okay? So Greensill may have said he was trying to put payday lenders out of business. Well, he lent to something that was effectively a payday lender. And by the way, it did go out of business. It went out of business last year, thankfully. So the, all the stuff that Gabe's talking about, he's exactly right. This sort of garb of officialdom gave a sort of glossy veneer when really Greensill was financing some quite unsavory companies. Now, Robert, I mean, you, you approach Lex Greensill. I'm sure he's delighted to hear from you. Uh, just tell us a little bit about that. I mean, you took, it's, just a fascinating detail. So he, he, he went after the Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, to introduce mm. a lending scheme for government workers um, and accidentally sent the WhatsApp. We've all done it. Who hasn't accidentally tried to communicate with the uh, Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, sent it to the wrong number? Whack, uh, whack, whack, whack. Anyway, so this was October 2019, and uh, he played on his association with David Cameron. Uh, he speaks most highly of you. So just tell, <laughs> tell me about, tell, tell us a bit about that, and, and just tell us about approaching. Well, yeah. So on on that, like, I think it's a nice story because it sort of it gets to the kind of access to power Greens will have, but also like the the slight ineptitude and sort of um, you know, there's a lot of comic elements to the story and. So basically, he he went to some events Scott Morrison was at, and uh, who's the Australian Prime Minister, and um, 
he tried um, he tried to text him after, but he texted the wrong number, and um, we, we got this text. And he says, Prime Minister, Lex Greensill here. And he says, David Cameron, who is on our board, David Cameron wasn't on his board, and a material shareholder, speaks most highly of you. And after hearing you this evening, I understand why. And basically what he was doing here was he was trying to roll out earned in Australia. And in the text, he describes it as he'll, he'll carry the cost as a gift to the nation. Okay. What's really interesting here is that Australia didn't fall for this. So Australia didn't provide it. So Lex Greensill, an Australian politician, and um, David Cameron tried to lobby them again in Davos, and they just weren't interested. Um, in terms of my interactions with Lex Greensill, so I've been trying to get like on-the-record interviews with him for years, right? Um, I've only been allowed one official interview with him ever once, and that was in May last year, and it was off record. And it was actually while he was lobbying to get on this Bank of England scheme. So it was around the same time. And he kind of actually gave me his pitch off the record. The, imagine, I imagine the same pitch he gave to the Treasury officials. But I guess what's quite amusing is when this started unraveling at the start of March, you know, we really wanted comment out of Lex himself. And like all good journalists, one of the tools in your armory is to cold call someone so i called lex greensill's mobile number he lives in cheshire by the way in a nice house up there um and he and he answered he picked up he said hello lex greensill so i said oh hi it's rob smith from the financial times just looking for an update on what's going on and um he said that he didn't want to talk to me because of the significant amount of character assassination that i'd <laughs> i'd carried out which um like to be honest like at the ft we've just been doing accurate reporting of the state of affairs of his business so yeah i think i think that tells you what lex greensall thinks about journalists who've been digging into his company wounding him with facts assassinating him with <laughs> truth and reality you, you can yeah. prove anything with facts yeah. you can prove anything. Lethal, weapon. lethal weapon lethal weapon um yeah so Gabriel, i mean firstly this this detail about no minutes being taken i mean how extraordinary how peculiar is that but also i know your colleagues at the times have been looking at this about the the treasury offering to redesign uh pandemic business support schemes to accommodate greens i mean just just those two things how significant is that how big a scandal is that element so um, it was the Financial Times that first revealed that Cameron had lobbied the Treasury in number 10 to help Greensill um, access these COVID emergency finance schemes. And then about a month ago, I revealed that Cameron had personally texted Rishi Sunak um, as part of that lobbying campaign. And Her Majesty's Treasury kind of flushed out all this material last week, which we, and I'm sure... Um, many other newspapers had subjected, subjected to freedom of information requests. And what it revealed was in March, um, just after lockdown or just before lockdown, perhaps, Rishi Sunak, uh, in conjunction with the Bank of England, launched this scheme called the COVID Corporate Financing Facility, CCFF. What this was, was a big government scheme to loan, um, as it happened in the end, £37 billion in total, um, but large amounts of money to blue chip companies, uh, sorts of firms on the FTSE 100 who were deemed in and of themselves to play a really significant part uh, in the British economy. Now, Greensill thought, well, hold on a second. Um, I'm not a blue chip company, I'm not a big manufacturer, don't make big engines, I'm not a supermarket, but I nevertheless want to access th this scheme. And 
specifically what I want to do is I want taxpayer backed uh, or taxpayer funded money to pass on to small and medium sized businesses. Uh, in, in other words, he saw an opportunity in the form of uh, the sudden largesse of the British state in order to mitigate the economic impact of COVID. And he just brazenly tried to change the entire architecture and purpose then of the CCFF so that his company could be at the heart of it. Now, Treasury officials looked at this. I think they took one look at it and thought, this is uh, a nice idea, but this is not what we're trying to do with the CCFF. And we've got a whole tranche of schemes forthcoming, which are going to address the specific question of small and medium-sized businesses. And none of them happen to involve uh, fintech come startup come bank founded by Lex Greensill. So Greensill then sets Cameron um, onto not only Sunak, who he texted, but also Jesse Norman, Chief Financial Secretary to the Treasury, John Glenn, Chief Economic Secretary to the Treasury, and Sheridan Westlake, Boris Johnson's Senior Special Advisor, who had, in fact, like the aforementioned three ministers, worked under Cameron during his time in government. And I think it's important to say, I, I don't want to jump to the end of the story and re reveal um, what happens uh, in the end, but in the end, the Treasury did not change the CCFF for Greensill, but what it did do, um, in fact, days after Cameron had called and text Sunak, was it made the top two civil servants at the Treasury, um, I know there's a lot of uh, Whitehall jargon and verbiage in this conversation, but I'm gonna try and make this the last. He got the permanent secretary of the Treasury, the second permanent secretary, the two top officials uh, in, the, in, in, in that department, to meet with Greensill. And they, in fact, ended up spending two and a half months reconsidering whether to change the CCFF for him. They they launched this confidential research exercise where they spoke to other businesses about whether, in fact, Greensill's proposals might work for them. They had various calls and Microsoft Teams meetings with Greensill himself and officials from his business. I mean, they basically gave the guy the Rolls-Royce treatment. I mean, these FOIs are stunning and that they show the immediacy and the depth of Lex Greensill's communication with these officials who, by the way, were in some instances literally meeting with him as Boris Johnson was in intensive care and as they were controlling the country's purse strings in its biggest post-war crisis. So, you know, Cameron did bend Whitehall to his will. It didn't quite work out for him in the end, albeit um, Greensill did become an accredited lender under a separate government scheme um, and uh, indeed in due course was placed under investigation by the British Business Bank for violating the rules of the scheme. So um, no, it's, it's, it's very troubling indeed. And I think um, this is kind of one of those moments um, where the, the rules, I mean, it, they may not have been breached per se, but that is almost itself the point. There were no rules breached when Greensill met Matt Hancock. There were no rules breached when Cameron lobbied Sunak. And, it is one of those moments where you think, well, if none of that constitutes a rule breach, there are certainly searching questions to be asked about the configuration of our rules for policing the conduct of former prime ministers. I mean, on that, I mean, lots of, for lots of people, they're trying to process the magnitude of this, basically. And some of the questions reflect that. So Stephen Coleman asked, do we know how common this kind of behaviour is? It's a very basic, fundamental question, but it, it links to what you've just said there about... I mean, this is often when people, the discussion about tax, tax avoidance versus tax evasion. Tax evasion is breaking 
the law. Tax avoidance is legal. You're exploiting loopholes, which you're legally technically able to do so without facing prosecution. That doesn't make it right. It makes it you're going against the spirit of what was intended. And I think the same applies in, in this particular case, just because it's not technically I mean, you know, that suggests the rules themselves are are problematic. They're, they're flawed. But how how common is this kind of behaviour? We often, or journalists often talk about this, the revolving door. So you yeah. get a revolving door between uh, government ministers, civil servants, and private business. Private businesses often regard senior politicians as extremely lucrative for very obvious reasons. So you'll often get former defence ministers who end up working for defence companies, uh, and so on. That's that's very much part of, you know, so just talk about how common that is. How common is this sort of behavior? Or is it actually a, a significant departure from even that kind of thing? So I, either of you want to kick off on that? Um, I mean, I'll just briefly um, say that I think this is sort of, it is normal and it isn't normal. Um, it is normal in that lots of ministers, as you say, go on to work for contractors or companies that have lots of government business and they use their contacts in order to aid and abet the commercial interests of those firms. But for me, I'll try to rattle this off quickly because I know you said we're aiming for half an hour. I think this is distinct for three reasons. Uh, The first is that he's a former prime minister. Uh, The second, sadly for David Cameron, is he got caught. Um, And the third, and we haven't, I don't think, oxygenated this point enough, um, is that it's not just that Cameron lobbied for a firm in fairly brazen, self-interested fashion. He did it for a firm whose collapse now imperils 55,000 jobs around the world, including 5,000 in, in this country. Um, Greensill had this symbiotic relationship with the steel empire of a Indian-born British commodities magnate called Sanjeev Gupta. And that now, uh, he, he's now the third biggest steel manufacturer in the country. And Greensill's collapse... Um, has exposed, I mean, well, Robert Smith uh, has exposed <laughs> the ludicrous and allegedly fraudulent um, business structure that kind of made these um, that made these companies work or, uh, you know, the basis upon which they ended up becoming so entrenched. But the collapse of Greensill now, um, you know, has put so many jobs on the line. And that is why I think this scandal is different and will run and run and run. But we've not even got to the point um, where the government has been forced to either bail out uh, some of Gupta's businesses or indeed um, acknowledge that there are just going to be job losses up and down the country. Robert, I'd be really interested in your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Gabe's like hit the nail on the head, uh, unsurprisingly there. Um, Sanjeev Gupta, right? So who is this guy? Okay, so he was hailed as the saviour of steel by the BBC in this like glossy documentary, which is sort of borderline hagiographical in 2017. Not long after, me and my colleague, Michael Pula, who's a fantastic industries, um, industrials journalist, we started digging into like the underpinnings of this empire. And we found out it was just sort of all propped up by financial engineering. Now, Sanjeev Gupta's threatened to sue us many times, which is always a good validation of your work, along with being accused of uh, character assassination. Um, So our latest story on Friday was basically the form of financing that Greensill provided was Sanjeev Gupta would have invoices um, to his customers from his suppliers, so indicating that money was owed somewhere. And he'd take that invoice and Greensill would finance it. 
right? Now, we've seen some of these invoices that his company issued. And they say that he was owed money by these different metals companies. And we rang those metals companies. And those metals companies said, we have never done business with Sanjeev Gupta. Okay, so literally have a piece of paper seemingly issued by his company, which people are saying, we've no idea what this is. Okay, and this is like ridiculously serious. As Gabe was saying, he employs 5,000 people in this country, but 35,000 around the world, right? And while this has been going on, Sanjeev Gupta has been living the high life, okay? He's been living a very wealthy lifestyle. So in the FT a few weeks ago, we revealed that at the, around the same time that his companies were drawing hundreds of millions of pounds in COVID loans, he bought a 42 million pound mansion in Belgravia under his wife's name, okay? Like, I'm going to say like typical UK steel owners don't buy some of the most expensive mansions in the country, okay? And this guy, by the way, Sanjeev Gupta is in Dubai. He's been in Dubai since around Christmas. He hasn't come back to the UK. He addressed unions last month. He did it over Zoom from Dubai. So you've got this guy that the BBC hailed as the savior of steel. And while there's like sort of very serious allegations about his business, he's holed up in the UAE. Um, so yeah, I mean, Gabe, Gabe's absolutely right. This scandal isn't going to die down because there's a lot of things that have to play out with Sanjeev Gupta here. Finally on that, because that's what I'm interested in, where this is all heading, is, I mean, Rishi Sunak is the most popular politician in the country. Well, I believe he is. He, he was, according to the latest polling I saw. And it, it seems like nothing sticks on Rishi Sunak. Is, how damaging do you think this will end up being? Some are saying, but you know, sell shares in Rishi Sunak. How, how serious do you think, I mean, is this now the worst of it? Or, or have you both got some more tasty morsels you think you're going to expose. <laughs> How serious is this going to get for Rishi Sunak and members of the British government? Or, I mean, I'm, it's fortunate timing, let's be brutally honest, given the current nature of the news cycle. But where do you, how do you think this will play out and what will the consequences be as you see it? Gabe, yeah, one, one for Gabe, yeah. I mean, look, I think first answer is I don't know. Second is to do the journalistic thing. Of, despite having just said that, offering some thoughts anyway. Um, there's this drip, drip, drip of kind of cronyism and corruption stories, um, which we've seen over the last year, often in relation to the pandemic, but not limited to it. Think about Jenrick and um, Robert Jenrick and Richard Desmond sitting together at a Tory fundraiser weeks before uh, Jenrick pushed forward this proposal of his that saved him £50 million. Pounds. Um, all these PPE contracts issued without tender, then this. I mean, you know, I don't know. Uh, public opinion is an unpredictable and plastic phenomenon that can change in uh, kind of interesting and unpredictable ways. Uh, we're in a pretty unprecedented political situation. But, you know, I, I, do, I do wonder whether, um, I mean, I don't know, Labour might exploit it or it might just be a groundswell of public opinion. Uh, there, there might be some sort of moment um, where... Uh, government is forced to change the way that it does things i don't know that might be a bit ambitious i mean i'm not saying it's my ambition um but that might be a bit optimistic um in relation to this uh look the civil service um you know it has been claimed comes out of this smelling like a bed of roses because they did in the end say no to these tweaks to the ccff but there are big questions of ministers and the civil service you know even though in the end they didn't change it why 
was Cameron and Greensill, why were they able to get this extensive, dazzling access to such powerful people? Why was Greensill able to issue loans backed by the taxpayer, given the opaque and, um, as it happened, kind of complex and potentially fraudulent structure of um, of, of the business he was propping up? Um, and moreover, why did Rishi Sunak, in response to Cameron's text, seemingly give his blessing for officials to reconsider their position? I mean, these are massive questions um, that, you know, so far haven't had major political impact because of aforementioned wider circumstances. Um, but, you know, hopefully uh, I'll have some stories coming coming up, and Robert will too, that um, ensure this gets the attention it, it rightly deserves. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And on that, do you follow both Gabriel and Robert? Uh, Robert is at BondHack on Twitter and Gabriel Pogrand with a, you can look up uh, very easily. Uh, They both do this fantastic work, which is holding the feet of the powerful to the fire as they've been doing so. So despite media attention currently being focused elsewhere, here's some phenomenal work being done by two brilliant journalists. So do follow both of them. I really appreciate both of you coming on at very, very short notice to talk about uh, your scoops. So I really appreciate it. And I will speak to you both soon. Take care. Thanks so much. Thanks. Okay. So what I'm going to do is bring Riley in and I'm going to explain for why, because my camera is playing up and I'm going to let... Hi, Sorry, everyone. So the right moment. Hey, Riley, how you doing? So, oh, not too bad. Riley, kick off. Explain. I want you to just give some basic context uh, as I sort my computer out, because my computer's mm-hmm. just decided at a very opportune moment to, to play up. Now, I want to know, you came across Greensill mm-hmm. on your podcast, Trust Future, uh, which everyone needs to subscribe to and listen to. Can you just explain how you came across it? Yeah, sure. So, look, Trash Future is all about, I guess, what's all about a lot of things, but a lot of our focus is on uh, finding the uh, inherent comedy in the ludicrousness of the uh, tech startup, late capitalist, whatever you want to call it, economy. And one of our sort of you know long-term uh, 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 topics of focus has been SoftBank. And so our entry into Greensill was via SoftBank. Um, specifically because the SoftBank Vision Fund is an object of total fascination to me. Uh, If your viewers uh, don't know what that is, is essentially SoftBank started out as a Japanese computer, uh, like tech conferencing company in like the 80s, 
uh, slowly became a catalog of software, did joint ventures with Vodafone Japan, Yahoo Japan, and so on. Through all of these joint ventures, turned into this gigantic conglomerate. And um, part of what the Masayoshi Son has tried to do, the CEO of SoftBank, is he has tried to invent the future. So uh, you heard about that camping trip in uh, Saudi Arabia that uh, Cameron and Greensill and, and, and MBS went on. Um, that was sort of deeply associated with the SoftBank view of the world. It wasn't the same trip, but uh, SoftBank was also sort of pushing uh, Greensill on Saudi. And he's also pushing Greensill on Indonesia. Um, and the idea was, right, he has this um, Masa, Yoshi-san, has this giant $100 billion uh, American fund. And what he does is he invests in these moonshot companies. Uh, he invested in Alibaba, he invested in Uber, he invested in WeWork famously. He was like the big money behind them. Uh, other companies you might not know about, like Katera, OYO, they'll come up later. And uh, these companies all like, he invests in them at enormous valuations. They take over the market and so on. And the vision is we're going to invent the future. Um, mostly, by the way, that money was Saudi uh, oil wealth. And so we've been following this for a while, if only because the companies are extraordinarily absurd and very easy to make fun of because they're ridiculous and fail all the time. Um, and so when we, I came across Greensill, because I was reading some some finance blogs, and I was looked, I was like, hey, interest, that's very interesting. This is a, uh, a shadow bank, number one. So it is a, a shadow financial institution. And it appears to be in a relationship whereby it is providing supply chain finance from Credit Suisse's supply chain finance fund to other SoftBank co-investees, such as OYO, FAIR, Gauzy, etc. Uh, these tech companies that don't really do anything and are sort of crazy. Um, and one of the benefits of supply chain financing to companies like this is that it doesn't look like debt on your balance sheet. You can make a company look a lot more healthy than it is with supply chain financing. And so Greensill, we sort of find, um, is the only is the sole introducer of Credit Suisse's $10 billion supply chain finance fund. And then a bunch of SoftBank co-investees are introduced to this Credit Suisse supply chain finance fund. And then um, all those companies that are facing difficulties, all of a sudden, their balance sheets look a little better. And so there was this sort of scandal that emerged some some months later. Again, sort of very well reported on by uh, by, by by Rob, who was, I absolutely credit with um, just chasing after this like a terrier. Um, whereby it's like, wait a minute, SoftBank appears to be able to invest in this supply chain finance fund, push its own money through the balance sheets of its own companies, and make those look healthier than they are. Again, this scandal, when it was revealed, caused Credit Suisse to distance itself from Greensill. Um, and so then once... You, and the thing about Greensill is, it's a story of many angles. Once you pull on one thread, you keep finding other threads elsewhere. You keep finding it connected to other things. The connections with the British state, the claims about, um, about connections with the American state, whether or not those were sort of real. Um, you look at what companies are using supply chain financing, then you look at the rules for supply chain financing. Um, where a company, the, the, the guidance on a company that is being supply chain financed at the uh, European level guidance, for example, is that uh, you don't have to really declare much about it. You should, but you don't have to. Um, and one of the reasons that they can do this is that uh, Greensill is, uh, as, as the other guys were saying, not a bank. It's a tech company. Uh, and that means it basically doesn't have to follow uh, any rules, more or less at all, effectively, compared to a bank. 
And so we just sort of kept on chasing this and we kept on finding more and more objects of fascination. And that's sort of how, um, how, in fact, Rob and I started talking as well. And then it sort of sprawled into just this, in, into this thing that I think is sort of quite, quite demonstrative and rather sort of inevitable in a neoliberal economy. I'm back, by the way. Uh, after a slight interlude uh i will not what this has only happened well i was thrown off my own show by wi-fi another time. my show oh, now i know i was gonna say and i was on with michael walker <laughs> from navarro he staged a coup d'etat uh and, and just unilaterally just took over the show but we didn't need to do that this time we just needed to sort out a slight tech issue but i am back yeah at this point i bet you say it's not a bank it's a tech company now uh right here i mean this whole issue of debt Bad debt disguises good debt because they don't have to follow the same rules. Just un- un- unpack that a bit. I mean, what do we mean by tech company? I mean, very yeah. basic stuff. <laughs> um, and, you know, and what, you know, these credulous individuals who just so happen to be in a position to turn all this money on this random Australian. <laughs> oh, God, there's a lot to unpack there. So one of our long-term theses on uh, TF is that uh, a tech company really is a kind of a shell game. Uh, most tech companies, what they actually do, their innovation, is uh, circumventing regulations of some kind. Um, so, for example, Uber isn't a tech company. It's not a cab company. It's a regulation-circumventing machine uh, to circumvent employment regulations. For example, Airbnb is not a tech company. It's not a hotel company. It is, in fact, a property-use regulation-circumventing machine. Uh, Greensill is uh, not a bank. It's a tech company. It is a lending regulation uh, circumventing machine, right? Because a lot of how regulation works, especially sort of after 2008, is that you, it's sort of, um, you're always fighting the last war. So you're looking, for example, you say, look, okay, what happened in 2008? Uh, Banks wrote a bunch of loans uh, on uh, mortgages in America um, and they assumed that because people pay their mortgages, that these loans would be fine. And they looked and they said, look, nothing's ever going to change. People are going to pay their mortgages. Uh, we're going to say these guys with all this, uh, these performing mortgages, these regu- with regular repayments, or whatever, if we diversify them up, we can actually take some of these bad mortgages and pop them in there, right? And that's the, everyone knows that. That's the story of the 2008 financial crisis. As a result of that, banks were sort of uh, forced to be more stringent with, lend- with lending rules. Um, uh, they also had to take on uh, more uh, assets related to, um, they also had more cash versus like, like loans and all this. We fixed the problem with banks. But the thing is, the reason the banks did this is that it's extremely profitable. Because what, what all this was, all of this financial engineering was essentially... Uh, taking a risk that was a big risk, denying that it was such a big risk, and then continuing to pass that hot potato around. And the reason we do that is the longer you pass the hot potato around, um, everyone who touches the hot potato makes money. Um, and so what, what do we think with supply chain finance? How does this relate it? Well, a lot of the supply chain finance um, instruments were considered to be as good as cash because it would be primarily actually the telecoms industry that it was sort of born for. So Greensill sort of claims he uh, created the underlying concept that became Greensill uh, for Vodafone in the early 2010s. But um, Australian companies like Telstra, I think, what, 27% of their balance sheet was sort of was related to SCF at some point. Like it was these are not sort of small uh, chunks of these companies. And the thing is, right, is what is 
is Vodafone going to stop paying its suppliers? No, of course not. You know, if Vodafone goes bust, then this is a way bigger problem. And also those claims by suppliers are senior versus sort of other forms of um, like equity or whatever. It's a good way to make money, especially when yields on, on debt are very low. So if you're saying, look, this is short-term debt, it's as good as cash, the yields are better than, you know, borrowing from the Bank of England, than um, sort of lending to the Bank of England or what have you, then, you know, all of a sudden it becomes very easy to sit, just like in the, in the housing crisis, to look at um, all of these good performing mortgages and allowing the badly performing ones to kind of creep up. And so, you know, what you have is uh, Credit Suisse might think that it's buying a receivables um, note on the base for like, I don't know, okay, a company like Vodafone, when actually what it's doing is it's buying a prospective receivables note for a steel plant owned by Sanjeev Gupta on the basis of a commercial relationship that doesn't exist. If that makes sense. Let's talk, let's throw in David Cameron specifically. Yeah. Um, what made Greensill so attractive, do you think, to David Cameron? I'm quite, I'm quite interested because obviously we'll talk mm-hmm. kind of the bigger picture here with this. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, in the Sunday Times article, I know this is something you're interested in, is, mm-hmm. is two very, you know, senior civil servants in Cameron. They were, they were seduced by this guy. Just exp- explain, explain your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, like, one of, the, so if, one of the things I've been talking about for the last 10 or so minutes, right, is how um, Greensill is able to perform what is essentially financial magic. Uh, it says, we have this great tech stack, which was actually not theirs, by the way. It was a third-party licensed uh, technology from a company called Talia. And we're able to magic money into existence. And if you are an austerian government, I think people people forget, actually, how what the government was like here in 2012. I had recently moved here uh, uh, some years previously. And um, there was this worship of the tech industry because the tech in- because the tech industry, like I said earlier, it's this shell game. It allows you to sort of magically solve problems almost. Um, there is this desperate need to we to say we can make the government lean and life. We can make it run well. We just need to outsource everything to the boffins. Uh, we need to say, look, we're. Um, we, we have this, uh, and again, this is quoted from the Sunday Times, uh, civil servants impressed by the whizzy ideas of swashbuckling businessmen who are essentially going to invent the future, right? Um, these, and again, even like in the Vision Fund, these companies that are claiming to invent the future from AI or whatever often fall apart because there's very little there. It's fantastic marketing. And so if you're trying to do the impossible, right, if you're trying to... Um, you know, let's say, uh, undertake the neoliberal imperative of the state, which is to shrink state planning, increase uh, finance sector planning of the economy. And you are essentially trying to deliver the same amount of services, the same level of services uh, with um, uh, less, <laughs> fewer resources. Um, what you have to do is find a way to turn lead into gold, effectively. And what Greensill offered them, he said, um, I am going to use my technology that is might as well be indistinguishable from magic, uh, as far as you're concerned, uh, and I am going to square that circle for you. And I think because there was just this need to look as though like something was being done, um, that they were sort of very that people with very senior positions very eagerly signed up to it. And I think it's telling that the people who are actually involved in any doing at all sort of immediately saw through um, the fact that, well, wait a minute, why does the government, which has access to a bank that can actually 
create bank deposits. Why do we need this financing firm to pay our suppliers earlier? We can sort of invent the money if we need to. This is not necessary. This is clearly just to benefit some bank. Um, and I, I, I think it's, and it's this belief, right? It's this belief that things must be removed from the public sector's uh, control, democratic control, at all costs, right? If you can, if you can put a tech company in there, if you can add some magic, um, then maybe uh, this austerity thing can work. We can deliver more with less because we've got a very smart guy. Um, again, essentially a wizard uh, who is going to fix it for us. And every time, every time you try to make a wizard fix the problem, the wizard ends up rich and your problem ends up compounded. Mm-hmm. Let's talk some structural stuff, structural mm-hmm. critique. I love a bit of structural <laughs> critique. Now, obviously, we had two absolutely fantastic journalists on who do a, a brilliant job at uncovering the information which we're discussing. Uh, what do you think that, I mean, you know, when we do a structural critique, individual triumphs don't negate structural critiques. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, what what does it say about the nature of so much mainstream British journalism that these this isn't interrogated or, or discussed in on the on the in the pages of our esteemed national newspapers until yeah. the moment it becomes a crisis? Yeah, well, I think as as Rob was saying earlier, right? Like the BBC did sort of um, this glowing, um, you know, uh, uh, um, sort of this uh, uh, glowing profile of Sanjeev Gupta as the savior of steel. Um, also, uh, I had a little sort of hobby, sort of after we sort of started checking out Greensill, and once we'd been checking out Greensill, like the writing, I, I didn't know this at the time, the writing had been on the wall for them for a while because um, their credit insurance sort of was getting a bit shaky. By the time we were looking at them, it again has been withdrawn and they've fallen apart. But um, uh, 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 they were, it was big, there were problems that were beginning to appear. And there were already was known that Greensill was deeply um, connected to the public sphere. So this was, I would th- say, worthy of reporting on. Um, and I would sort of, I had this little hobby, I would check the BBC every once and again to see, has anyone seen, hey, there might be a sort of mini financial crisis coming from um, supply chain financing and the shadow banking industry in Britain and Greensill is like the poster child for that. Uh, has anyone written about how this might be coming? And every single time I would check for months and months and months until basically late last year, until the collapse was already in progress, the only article on the BBC was an article from BBC Lancashire about how Lex Greensill donated his private plane, one of his four, uh, to fly a uh, cancer patient to an experimental treatment in Germany, which is essentially the same thing. It's doing PR uh, for this particular man, which in retrospect seems like something you wouldn't really want to do. And I think it's because there is an aversion to... There is a certain aversion to complexity. Uh, there is a certain avert, and there is a certain aversion. I think this is not just true in British journalism; it's also true in the British state to avoid dealing with things until they become crises. Um, and I think that is because, I mean, I, I think that's because uh, number one, we are riven with an optimism bias uh, throughout our institutions. This is true for. Again, this was true from David Cameron saying, oh, this this whiz bang, you know, um, wonderful technology is going to fix is going to allow us to do austerity while remaining at the same level of public service. Um, It's the same thing with, you know, again, the um, the the newspapers printing these uh, sort of too good to be true headlines because, you know, it's um, complicated and risky 
to do uh, you know, journalism that um, might suggest that things are, are not what they seem, uh, that things might be worse than they seem, uh, and so on and so on. And so much of that gets sort of, is about covering the, if you like, the sort of the, the, the very exciting froth of Westminster that sort of, lo- and, and, and there's, I'd say it's um, less exciting and more risky to look at something like this. And so if you want to say, well, wait, why didn't we do something earlier? Why weren't we prepared? Why did this happen? Right? It's because I think simply we do not want to accept that um, much of our economy is propped up on quite shaky foundations and we won't want to talk about it until we want to ask why no one saw it coming. Uh, Except, of course, present company excluded. Uh, (laughs) Because obviously, like, especially with with the FT, this is why I think a lot of socialists quite rate the FT. Um, is that they have no need to reproduce ideology. Uh, they uh, actually have to, like, they, they have to sort of give materially uh, relevant information to actual capitalists to make actual decisions. My, uh, my parents were in the militant tendency. This is linked, by the way. I'm a right-wing shift compared to my parents. No, my, my parents <laughs> were in the, in the militant tendency, which was a Trotskyist group, which was very prominent in the 1980s. And their leading figures always uh, implored their cadre to buy and read the Financial Times because it was it, it because finance capital needs to know objective truth about what's actually happening without ideological spin uh, mm. being put on it. So it was uh, it, it was long regarded the pink pages of Financial Times as uh, <laughs> as a gold mine uh, for the revolutionary left. There you go. Um, yeah. In terms it's of the, the da- it's the Daily Green Seal now. I think you'll find it's, it's the Daily Green Seal. I'm a proud subscriber of Financial Times. I've subscribed to Financial Times for years. Um, in terms of the other point we made, I mean, again, structural critique. This whole well, David Cameron has been clear. He's done nothing wrong. Yeah. But what does this tell us if he hasn't broken the rules? Then what does this tell us about the rules? Uh, the rules are great, is what it tells us. Uh, it, they're great, and we love them. And uh, we should all become sort of uh, uh, lobbyists on a technicality. Who knows? Maybe we could sell, you know, I don't know, AI-powered electric toothbrushes to the army that, you know, again, turn out to, like, contain trace amounts of arsenic or whatever and all make tons of money and not break any laws. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's one of these things where you ask yourself, you know, in... Um, if the rule, if the if by following the rule brought you to this point, of what use was the rule, right? You this this thing has been able to happen, that is, uh, you might I, I sort of try not to um, reference say uh, moral intuitions too often, but that to sort of quite obviously stinks, um, and that had Cameron been less, to be perfectly blunt, inept at what he was doing. The crisis could have been larger. So effectively, sort of many, how, how much British taxpayer money and you know British jobs, how many British jobs have essentially been saved by the fact that Cameron wasn't particularly very good at this. Um, and so, you know, we have to ask ourselves, right, of what use was that rule if it brought us here? And what is the, what are the political valences to change that rule? Um, and again, you know, if you want to say, if you want to look at the, uh, let's say, the current state of the Conservative Party and its relationship with, uh, let's say, um, uh, accidentally enriching its uh, friends, colleagues, themselves, whatever, off of the back of the state, then I think that rule change is sort of quite unlikely. And there is this sort of, um, I think the, 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 the naked exercise of greed is sort of at play here because you realize, well, 
the greatest prize of all is the state. You know, the greatest prize of all is the state. And that is, again, the sort of shared wealth of the British people. And, you know, it's there is. And, and the focus on simply saying, oh, do we have to change the lobbying rules? So that, uh, you know, David Cameron, so that if, you know, David Cameron was slightly better at what he was doing, he wouldn't be able to sort of cause all these problems or sort of facilitate these problems being caused. But rather um, to ask ourselves the question of, well, hang on, why are, why is, why are different private businesses sort of in this relationship with the state to begin with? How come the, how come this was even an option? Um, especially because we are sort of off the back of the last eight years, having proven that really the only people it benefits are a small coterie of, uh, you know, senior Tories and their friends. Finally, the C-bomb. Let's throw the C-bomb in. Capitalism, just before everyone is at the <laughs> what uh, does Let's this, talk about it. What does this tell us about the nature of British and global capitalism in 2021 what does all of this what does this reveal about our economic system all right looking at the amount of time we have left i'm going to just not talk about rudolph hilferding or mcm i'm going to get right to the point (laughs) okay all right so i think right i like to go back to back these basic questions right what is a tech company a tech company is a device for circumventing regulation well let's ask some even more basic questions things like what is money and what is finance what is money if you want to take a marxist understanding money is the special commodity that represents labor and the job of the capitalist is to do mcm or money commodity more money uh, and the commodity being labor so you use money to buy labor and you take more money from that and there's this infinite growth well uh infinite growth except for the rate of profit with its tendency to fall so um what and what is finance then but finance is the capitalist economy's planning function uh in a communist economy there is central planning according to the use value of things uh in a capitalist economy there is uh slightly decentralized planning uh according to the exchange value of things their propensity uh to sort of maximize the second m in that mcm um uh, 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 sequence so right and and so what we have here, right, we have an, a planned economy uh, where we are trying to advance money, which is represents labor. So we're allocating different um, so we're allocating labor to different activities that we think will produce the most exchange value. And I think neoliberalism is the process of delegating any kind of state of planning function from tradespeople or the state where it might have sort of worker or democratic control to finance. And uh, the interest rate, so uh, in Greensill's case, what it would take is a premium from, um, from suppliers who were sort of paying that um, discounted amount versus the um, final uh, owner of the – versus the main – the company, its client, who is paying the full amount of supply chain, that premium, uh, or the interest rate you get on a, on a – all of this. All of this is, a, is your profit that you get for your planning services to the economy. And when finance can sort of undertake that MCM with minimal investment, the less they can bother with the C, the commodity, the labor is possible. So, for example, prospective receivables financing, sort of issuing a loan and making a plan, not even on the basis of allocating where labor might be uh, or resources might be, uh, then it will do that. Or all the money that can will, it sort of flows through the path of least resistance. From minimum C to maximum, from minimum M uh, to maximum M, to make the most money with the least. And what I think we mean 
by late stage capitalism is that there's been so much capital accumulation at the top that the best way to accumulate that money is to switch the C in MCM from commodity labor to confidence, where these are essentially big pools of capital where who don't who can't really make lots of money from um, paying employees uh, and having them buy stuff from other shops and so on and so on that and that cycle. Right. There's just not that much money to make from them. Um, we extended them lots of credit in the 1990s, and that fell apart in 2008. Um, we, we then we tried to do welfare reform to keep money out of their hands and discipline them into the labor market. Uh, the labor market got, got way worse paying. The gig economy emerges and so on. And there's not, not a lot of money in catering to someone who like drives Uber and has a zero-hours contract because they don't have much money to spend. The money at this point is just in these pools of capital. It is... In the you know Credit Suisse's supply chain finance fund, it's among high net worth individuals, whatever. And what's happening with late stage capitalism is it is the scam stage. It is the uh, because you make more money by basically getting someone to invest in you and cashing that out. You know, it's why we're seeing these boom of um, uh, uh, special purpose acquisition companies or blank check companies doing sort of reverse mergers with dodgy private firms on the on the capital markets, right? There is this drive to make money, and it's just not profitable doing real things uh, as it is doing pretend things. Riley, what absolute order force, a roller coaster we have just gone <laughs> on. And it was an exhilarating roller coaster. No, honestly, absolutely phenomenal. And uh, the feedback has been uh, people, are, people are, are genuinely. Uh, blown away by that, by the level oh. of an analysis you have offered. So well, thank, thank you so thank much you, for everyone. that. I owe you a drink, which we can now do at some point. Uh, do follow. I have noticed my Wi-Fi connection has got a bit dodgy, but we've got to the end of the show without things completely collapsing. So do follow uh, Riley on uh, at R A A L E H on me. Twitter. Then you just get this. You get this analysis for free. Come on, guys, this is good. <laughs> so you can just get that, and also. You know, lots of lots of other freebies thrown in, but also yeah. uh, Riles is the uh, co-host of Trash Future podcast. I like to think we're all part of the kind of left-wing yeah. Marvel podcast universe. So That's also right. follow and listen to them because uh, it's not just Riley. You've got Milo Edwards. You've got Hussein. You've got uh, Alice. You've got. I mean, you've got a lot of mm-hmm. very excellent uh, people on the left and brilliant uh, analysis there. Riley, I really, really appreciate it. That was genuinely phenomenal. Um, oh, thanks, Ryan. I was a, a pleasure to be here. It was a, a huge pleasure, and uh, I know on the podcast, which this will also people are listening to this, obviously on the mm-hmm. podcast. Uh, I think this is going to be a phenomenal podcast as well. So, anyway, thank you so much. I owe you several drinks. <laughs> I will see you thanks, soon, and thanks so much for taking a bit of time. No, no worries. Later, everyone. Wow, what a show! That was come on. That was uh, pretty sensational insights revelations analysis about not just what we try to do is is look at what this scandal is but also what it represents and i I hope we've done that in a lot of detail so thank you so much everyone that was a real it's a real honor doing this show because that was so educational and informative and i know a lot of people were baffled about what was actually going on and what this scandal actually meant and we we did it Uh, but thank you so much for joining everyone thanks so much for the guests. Uh, we've got lots to come and uh, have a great week. I'll see you soon. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.